Hello and welcome to uh, No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to have you along with us. In his motu proprio, Traditiones Custodes, along with calling for uh, new restrictions on the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass, Pope Francis also called for the proper celebration of the New Mass. So today we're going to take a look at the New Mass in light of Redemptionis Sacramentum, the 2004 document that I consider to be the Magna Carta of correcting liturgical abuse. But uh, before we begin, I have, a, uh, I have a question for you. We're going to start with a... Uh, uh, a medieval mentality segment here. And uh, so we'll be doing the gospel from the traditional Latin Mass of uh, Sunday from the 14th, Sunday after Pentecost. We'll do that in the next segment. going to start with, uh, with this question. How often are you interrupted in a day? Probably a lot, right? I, sometimes it seems like interruption is just a way of life. And I suppose parents probably know this better than anybody. But studies show that it's no better at work than it is at home. They say the average worker is interrupted somewhere between 4 and 12 times every hour, uh, which means that being interrupted once every 15 minutes is the best-case scenario. So even, uh, even when we're um, uh, online, whether we're at the office or even in the privacy of our own homes, the ads are popping up, the emails are coming in, uh, our phone is constantly pinging with notifications from this or that social media, no matter where you are, no matter what time of the day or night. But we're not the only ones who have ever had to deal with interruptions. More often than not, the Bible does not describe our Lord Jesus as presenting uh, you know, pre-planned formal teachings like the Sermon on the Mount but most often recounts his reaction to being interrupted while he was traveling or preaching or oftentimes just trying to get away from everybody to be able to pray. In fact, our Lord often sought out solitude to converse with the Father. He spent 40 days alone fasting in the desert to prepare for his public ministry. He spent the whole night alone in prayer on a mountaintop before he gave the the Eucharistic discourse at the synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he took the apostles and then uh, he told them to wait. And he took Peter, James, and John further into the garden and he said, watch with me. But even then, he withdrew even further away from them so that he could pray in private. And he counsels us to do the same in, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, verses 5 and 6. He says, whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites who love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that others may observe them doing so. Amen, I say to you, they have already received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father in secret. And your Father, who sees everything that is done in secret, will reward you. Now, this is not an indictment of a formal public prayer like some of our fundamentalist brethren think. Uh, Jesus obviously participated in the liturgical prayer of the synagogue and in the temple, but he did have a problem with the uh, public offering of private prayers. Right? That's the point of the parable of the, of the Pharisee and the publican, because the Pharisee, in his public praising of God, was actually praising himself. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people greedy, dishonest, adulterous, even like this tax collector, right? even like this publican. 
I fast twice a week and pay tithes on all my income. I, me, mine. See, what Jesus criticizes is not the the fact that the Pharisee's praying. It's not his aesthetical effort that's the problem. It's his sense of self-sufficiency before God and his harshness towards others. You know, in contrast, our Lord counsels us to go into our room and close the door and pray to the Father in secret. And since no one else but the Father can hear our prayer, then we can be honest, completely, disclose our our deepest desires, repent of our darkest sins, and without the pressure of worrying about what other people may think. And with that in mind, I think we can see how it is that in times of great trial, uh, for example, when the faith was persecuted in the early Christian centuries, or um, in the uh, you know when, when you have persecution, when you have unfaithful leadership, um, like I say, the Desert Fathers or uh, the hermits and anchorites of the Middle Ages, um, we have people retreating from the world in order to better pray and make reparation. You know, I think of the stories of the Knights of the Round Table. Um, they're, they're always, you know, off on an adventure someplace, and they're wounded, and they stumble across a hermitage, and the hermit, uh, um, you know, takes care of their wounds. Or, you know, they're, they're, they hope to hear Mass, and they run into a hermit who's a priest, and he says Mass for them, that sort of thing. They really kept um, the purity of the faith alive at, at times, you know, like during the Avignon papacy or, or during the, you know, when Christians were being thrown to the lions, that sort of thing. Uh, giving up the books. One of my favorite um, spiritual readings is um, a book of the love of Jesus, which is a, just a collection of prayers and and uh, essays, meditations, of a medieval English hermit named Richard of Hampole. But unfortunately, of course, for you and I, being a hermit is uh, you know it's hardly an option. <laughs> Chances are, like me, you have a spouse to think of and a family to support and work to do that kind of thing. But daily retreats into solitude. Setting aside some quality time to be alone with our Lord. If you want to keep your faith, this is a must. And you notice I say daily, and I say retreats, plural. Uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, the great uh, mystic, uh, uh, was called the last of the fathers by Pius Twelfth, primarily because his, his great insights into theology and into scripture did not come from re- studying the writings of others but from his own contemplation of the sacred word. And Bernard said, what I know of the divine science, that is theology, and holy scripture, I learned in the woods and fields. The beaches and the oaks were my only masters, my only teachers. So in other words, here's a guy who lives in a monastery, <laughs> okay, where, where, where they order their life around uh, prayer and praying the office, and yet he still feels the need to seek solitude. And uh, solitude, which uh, Bernard found in nature. And you can see his humility. He doesn't say, oh, I go off by myself, and that's when I have all these great ideas. He says, no, the creation, the rocks, the the trees, they teach me. You know, he goes out and effectively communes with God in creation. And that's where he, you know, uh, gets these wonderful insights. Now, for me, this daily retreat is the Liturgy of the Hours. Um, Betty and I still have four of our six kids at home. So solitude, you know, uh, is pretty difficult to find. So I, I pray the morning offering 
my morning, you know, my private prayers, and then I pray the morning uh, liturgy, the hours, early. I just do it before everybody else gets up. And then in the evening, I head out into the backyard, uh, typically, and for evening prayer. You know, it's not exactly the woods, but as long as it's still light out, you know, there's trees and there's a little bit of grass out there. Um, and, and so the, the point, though, is that there's some relative quiet and solitude. And then at night, I pray the night prayers after the family rosary. So I get in my three hours each day, you know, and, and hours being the fact that you do it at a certain time, not that it takes an hour. Um, anyway, you know, uh, when I fail to keep that schedule, my spiritual life suffers. I mean, really. Um, and I would say just my life period suffers. And of course that means that the lives of my family and friends suffer as well because they have to live with me. So in, in the great spiritual work of the middle ages, the imitation of Christ, Thomas Akempis devotes chapter 20 of the first book of the imitation to the love of solitude and silence. And it is absolutely chock full of useful admonitions for Catholics today. I just want to read, it's a long chapter, I won't be able to get to all of it. I just want to hit some highlights. It begins with him saying, Seek a convenient time to search your own conscience, meditating on the benefits of God. Restrain curiosity. Read only those things that will move you to contrition rather than give you distraction. So he's advocating that you take some time out, that you meditate, you pray, um, you, you examine your conscience, and you do some spiritual reading. So, okay, well, that sounds good, but I'm a busy person. When do I find time to do that? Well, <laughs> Thomas Akempis, remember, he's writing in the 1400s. Apparently, this is not a new excuse, because he says, if you will withdraw from unnecessary talk and useless running about and listening to the latest gossip, you will find time to occupy yourself in devout meditation. See, uh, Thomas Akempis, he doesn't pull any punches. He said, the greatest saints avoided the company of worldly people as much as possible, for they preferred to be alone with God. And this actually uh, complements something that Thomas Aquinas says. Um, he said that, that knowing whom to avoid is a great means of saving your soul. Uh, he goes on, uh, someone once said, as often as I've been among others, I've returned less a man. We know from experience when we talk too long or we know this from experience when we talk too long, it is easier to remain silent than not to say too much when we speak. It is also easier to stay home alone than to watch what you say when you go out so as not to offend. And, you know, it's true in the 1400s. It's still true. And again, and you know that very well from experience. We're going to get together with my friends. We're going to have a good time and so forth. And then you go and, yeah, you get into these uh, conversations and you say too much. And you come home with a, with a guilty conscience. And that's the thing. But now, of course, just staying home uh, isn't, isn't a guarantee of, of, you know, keeping you from talking too much because of social media. Obviously, uh, the, the, the Twitter storm and those on the Facebook feuds and so forth are precisely um, part of this. So he says, it, to lead an interior life, we, to have the grace of devotion, we must, with our Lord, go away from the crowd. Unless you like solitude... You shouldn't appear in public. No one is truly happy who's aware of an unclean conscience. All right, back with more after this, right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
Welcome back. Uh, a little later on in the program, uh, here on No Nonsense Catholic, we're going to have more on our examination of the new Mass in light of the Magna Carta of Correcting Liturgical Abuse, Redemptionis Sacramentum. Uh, but before we move on, I'm, um, in the last segment, we read a little bit about solitude and meditation, private prayer, from the imitation of Christ. And I really think that um, that that's, provides an antidote for one of the biggest problems that I see in the church and in general society today, and that's anxiety. People are worried uh, about a whole lot of things. And Jesus had something to say about that in the gospel this week uh, for the 14th Sunday after Pentecost. And this is uh, taken from Matthew 6, 24 through 33, and I'm reading today from uh, that new translation, the New Catholic Bible. No one can serve two masters, for you will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon, money. Therefore, heed my words. Do not be concerned about your life and what you will have to eat or drink, or about your body and what you will wear. Surely life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Gaze upon the birds in the sky. They do not sow or reap or store in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of far greater value than they? Can any of you, through worrying, add a single moment to your your span of life? And why are you concerned about what you are to wear? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither labor nor spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his royal splendor was clothed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which grows today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not all the more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore stop being anxious about such things. Do not say, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? These are things that are of concern to the Gentiles. Your Heavenly Father is fully aware of all your needs. Rather, seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. We live in a materialist, uh, materialistic society. And Jesus warns us not to make you know, genuine human needs the object of anxiety and thereby risk becoming enslaved to them. We can only have one master. Now, unfortunately for many people, the desire for money, and well, let's face it, the, what money can buy, far outweighs their commitment to God. They spend their lives serving mammon, serving money, collecting it, storing it up, you know, only to ultimately die and leave it all behind. Whatever you store up, you will spend a lot of time and energy thinking about it, worrying about it. And Jesus is warning us not to fall into that trap, the trap of materialism. You know, St. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all evils. And in their desire for it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many serious wounds. Now, money in itself is neither good nor bad. You know, money is morally neutral. It's the love of money that's the problem. 
and indeed the, the root of all types of evil. Therefore, it's not wrong for, for uh, you know, Christian believers, for Catholics to be well off, so long as they don't take pride in their riches, so long as they use them to do good. And of course, it's also possible to not be well off and still be obsessed by money. You know, but there is a way to test if you can honestly say that God is your master and not mammon. And it's, it's a simple question. Which one occupies more of your thoughts, your time, and your efforts? Earlier in Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus contrasted heavenly values with earthly ones when he said, um, Do not store up treasures for yourself on earth, where they will be destroyed by moth and rust and where thieves break in and steal. Rather, store up treasure for yourselves in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart also be. So, in other words, we should not be so fascinated by our possessions that they possess us. And that may mean that you have to do some cutting back, you know, if possessions are becoming too important. Our Lord would have us be content with what we have because we have chosen that which is eternal and lasting. Therefore, he says, heed my words. Do not be concerned about your life and what you will have to eat or drink or about your body and what you will wear. Surely life is more than food and the body more than clothing. And Jesus tells us not to worry because there's a lot of ill effects that come with anxiety. Um, you know, worry can damage your health. Um, they say you know, stress and anxiety is the cause of all sorts of health problems in our society. Uh, it can disrupt your productivity. It can negatively affect the way you treat others. And worst of all, it can diminish your ability to trust in God. Now, of course, there's a distinction between worry and, and care or, you know, genuine concern. And, and the way to tell the difference is this. Worry immobilizes. When you get worried, you, you, you freeze, you get stuck. Concern moves you to action. And there's the distinction. So Jesus says, stop being anxious. Rather, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. To seek the kingdom means to put God first in your life. Uh, fill your thoughts with his desire, his will. Take his character as your model. Serve him, obey him, show confidence in God's providence. That's the imitation of Christ. In the final analysis, the question is, what's really important? What is truly important to you? People, possessions, power, popularity, all of these and more compete for priority in your life, and any one of them could potentially bump God off the, out of first place, replace him on the throne of your heart, unless you actively choose to give him first place. And finally, you know, for some reason, the final verse in the passage from the gospel reading is left out. Um, but in Matthew 6, 34, Jesus says, so, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough troubles of its own. Now, there's an old saying, by, an inch, by the inch it's a cinch, and by the yard it's hard. Right? Jesus is saying, take things one day at a time. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't plan for the future. Uh, planning for tomorrow is time well spent. Worrying about tomorrow is a waste of time. Uh, and how do you know the difference? 
planning is to careful thinking about goals, discerning the concrete steps to take, uh, and then trusting in God's providence and moving forward. You, you know, done well, planning can help alleviate worry. It can make things better. But unlike planners, worriers are consumed by fear. They find it hard to trust in God. So the key is to not let worries about tomorrow affect your relationship with God today. Uh, As Father John at my parish said this Sunday, when trouble comes, let faith answer the door. I like that. I'll give the last word to St. Paul from his letter to the Philippians. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your kindness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but present your needs to God in prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Then the peace of God, which is beyond all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Terrific passage of the Bible. Don't worry about anything. (laughs) It seems impossible. Uh, We all have worries. But what St. Paul is saying is to transform your worries, to turn your worries into prayers. And really, it's a simple formula. Do you want to worry less? Then pray more. Whenever you start to worry, stop and pray. You know, the words, be not afraid, of their equivalent, as I have said this, you know, a thousand times, the words, be not afraid, uh, fear not, do not be anxious, have no fear, appear in the Bible something like 365 times. But the command to rejoice is repeated over 800 times. But how? How do we rejoice in times of trial? Uh, Well, you rejoice in times of trial because God's peace is different than the world's peace. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, be not afraid. That's John 14, 27. So true peace is not found in the world. It's not found in good feelings. It's not found in positive thinking or even the, 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 the mere absence of conflict. True peace comes from knowing that God is on the throne, that he is in control, that we are subjects of his kingdom and that his kingdom is not of this world, that through his grace, You can be saved from your sins. That our destiny is sure, that the victory is won. We have all been redeemed. Now it's about cooperating with God's grace in order to, to reach heaven. So you let God's peace guard you from anxiety. There's a little couplet um, that I repeat to myself from time to time. Uh, Be not afraid, our hopes not in vain. Lift up your hearts, the dragon is slain. And that is no nonsense. Okay, moving on now, I wanted to spend the the rest of the program talking a bit about the Novus Ordo Mise. Obviously, I'm the author of a book called Confessions of a Traditional Catholic, so I have some pretty obvious, uh, um, you 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 know where my allegiance lies, so to speak. But it's important, I think, um, we, we are at an important moment. This may be the, uh, you know, moment of truth for the Novus Ordo Mise. And it has to do with uh, uh, when uh, 
Pope Francis put out his Moda Proprio Traditionis Custodes, because he, you know, it's kind of, you know, rather draconian measures to restrict the traditional mass. But in there, almost like a footnote, he, he mentions the, uh, the abuse of the Novus Ordo liturgy and how that needs to be corrected. Actually, he's echoing what Benedict XVI said in Samorum Pontificum, and he's echoing, uh, even quoting in part, what John Paul II said in Ecclesia de Eucharistia. Uh, he said, in the years following the post-conciliar liturgical reform, as a result of a misguided sense of creativity and adaptation, there have been a number of abuses that have been a source of suffering for many. I consider it my duty, therefore, to appeal urgently that the liturgical norms for the celebration of the Eucharist be observed with great fidelity. Now that, Ecclesia Eucharistia was part of a trio of documents. We're going to be talking about that and more when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Life is fragile. I just uh, came back in here. If I sound a little out of breath, I almost tripped on the rug. Well, no, I, I did trip on the rug. I almost fell down. <laughs> so this could have been a very tragic situation, but uh, thankfully God's looking out for us here. All right. When Pope St. Paul VI introduced the new order of the Mass back in 1970, he made some important assertions that I think are well to remember because, really, they lay the foundation for a proper understanding of what Benedict XVI called the hermeneutic of continuity. I think you will see it's very clear that when Paul VI promulgated his new missal, that he did not intend for it to, to be a rupture with the tradition of the Church. You know, uh, he said, liturgy is like a strong tree whose beauty is derived from the continuous renewal of its leaves, <clears throat> pardon me, but whose strength comes from the old trunk with solid roots in the ground. And so uh, when he introduced the, the new Mass, he asserted that, and I'm quoting, the fundamental outline of the Mass is still the traditional one, not only theologically, but spiritually. All right, there is no spirit of the new Mass that's different from the old. And even as he made the case that, uh, you know, for the use of the vernacular in the new Mass, he also affirmed that Latin should not disappear when he said, and again I'm quoting, the new rite of the Mass provides that the faithful should be able to sing together in Latin at least the parts of the ordinary of the Mass. Okay, that is, all of the responses that you normally make in English, you should be able to make in Latin. That is what he foresaw. Especially, he said, the creed in the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. Now, that whole little section, actually, he's quoting directly from uh, paragraph 54 of Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is, you know, the, the Vatican II document on the liturgy. And one last thing, he said that Christ, victim and priest, offers up his redeeming sacrifice through the ministry of the Church. He leaves us his body and blood under the appearance of of bread and wine. Now, I bring that up because there's people out there, uh, you know, kind of on both sides of the liturgical aisle, 
who think that the, the quote-unquote post-conciliar church no longer teaches that the Mass is a sacrifice. But that, of course, is nonsense. Um, really, all you have to do to verify that, just take a quick trip, a, a cursory glance at the Catechism of the Catholic Church or the General Instruction of the Roman Missal. Now, last week, you know, I, I mentioned um, Redemptionis Sacramentum, and I referred to it as the, the Magna Carta for correcting liturgical abuse. And, and it really is, but it's, it's interesting to me, I was reading it again, you know, when I was preparing uh, these remarks, and I also went online and, and found the general instruction of the Roman Missal for the Novus Ordo Mass. It's right on the U.S. Bishop's website. And it's, it's very clear, it's easy to follow, and it's amazing how much of Redemptionis Sacramentum is just taken directly from the general instruction of the Roman Missal. They're saying the way to correct these abuses is just to, to you know, do the, uh, say the black and do the red, as they say, right? To, to, to say the prescribed words and do the prescribed actions. That's the, you know, that's the antidote for the liturgical abuse. Now, um, I mentioned that Redemptionis Sacramentum is the last of a trio of documents that were promulgated in the, the final years of St. John Paul II's pontificate. The first was Liturgium Authenticum on the proper translation of liturgical texts. That came out in 2001. And it bore fruit in the corrected translation of the English Missal that came out in 2010. And there are other national uh, you know, language missals that were corrected as well. And when we discovered, you know, that new translation, I think a lot of people found out that many of the, the so-called changes in the Mass weren't really official changes at all, but just a, a matter of mistranslation. And I dare say, in some cases, a, a willful and agenda-driven mistranslation. And we'll, we'll kind of cover some of those as we go through the Mass, and I'm, I'm sure we won't be able to get through it all today. Uh, but we'll, you know, we'll start... But the, the thing about, you can see the agenda in such things as, well, the, the big one was the consecration. You know, um, this is my blood of the covenant shed for you and for all, so that sins may be forgiven. Well, our Lord didn't say that. It's, um, this is my blood of the covenant shed for you and for many unto the remission of sins, or for the remission of sins. And, and there's a reason that he said for many and not for all, because at, at this point you know, in the gospel, he wasn't talking about the redemption, because he paid the price of everyone's sins. We're all of us redeemed. But he was talking about the, the fruit of their redemption. He's talking about salvation, and we're not all going to make it to heaven. And our Lord was very clear about that in his earthly ministry. Okay, so you can see that that's a, I mean, that's a genuine issue that really misrepresented, uh, you know, what's happening at that uh, part of the institution narrative, as they call it. Or uh, another example would be in the Nicene Creed, where now we say uh, that we believe in, in God, creator of hev heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, visibilium, visibilium et invisibilium. And for, for years, though, for 40 years uh, and more, we said things seen and unseen. And you can see the difference. You know, there are th seen and unseen can apply entirely to the material world. Lots of things that we, I can't see the air that I'm breathing right now. We can't see uh, <laughs> viruses, of course. Uh, there are plenty of things in the material world you can't see. But 
visible and invisible in terms of the creation is the distinction between the material world and the spiritual world, that which can be perceived by the senses and that which cannot. And that's a matter of faith. So you can see where these, these mistranslations really are mistranslations. Uh, okay, so that was the, the first of those documents. Next came um, John Paul II's 2003 document. This, I call it a cri de cour, a cry of the heart called Ecclesia de Eucharistia, which was his encyclical on the Holy Eucharist and where he um, made that quote where I said that he's, you know, uh, it was so important uh, to appeal urgently that liturgical norms for the celebration of the Eucharist be observed with great fidelity. And in that document, he promised that there would be a follow-up document, a, a disciplinary document, an instruction from the Congregation for the Doctrine of Worship and the Sacraments, which came out one year later in 2004, and that was Redemptionis Sacramentum. And for the most part, it has not been implemented. But if Pope Francis is really concerned about the celebration of the new Mass, like he said in Traditionis Custodes and in the letter to the bishops that accompanied it, well, maybe we can hold out some hope. Now, after all, it took 10 years from Liturgium Authenticum to actually fixing the translation. And fixing a translation is a whole lot easier than getting millions of people to break, you know, bad habits that they've, you know, accrued over some 50 years. Now, what I want to do now is, is just take an overview of the New Order of the Mass with an eye to what the Church officially teaches in the Catechism and the General Instruction of the Roman Missal, and in light of the abuses, the abuses that are reprobated, specifically reprobated in Redemptionis Sacramentum. And I want you to keep in mind that all of these teachings are post-Vatican II, right? Either from the Vatican document or the teaching that comes after. So if somebody says, hey, the Church doesn't teach that anymore, or that went out with Vatican II, now you're going to be able to recognize that that's not true. They're going to be able to know that, uh, that recognize it for the nonsense that it really is. All right, so the first thing is, um, you know, I've, I've run into this idea that the church no longer teaches that the Mass is a sacrifice, that it's just a meal and so forth. And that's just, that's demonstrably false. I'm looking here at um, this catechism. <laughs> I love it. It's, it's, it's in pieces. I have to hold it together with rubber bands because I've, I've read it so many times it's fallen apart. But this was, uh, this was my big catechism that I bought after I came into the church to learn more uh, about the faith. And, and it's here. Uh, this is obviously, it's all full of, it's an annotated catechism filled with uh, quotes from Vatican II and so forth. Obviously, it's made in the 80s, follows the, the catechism, or, or rather the Vatican II, and the uh, National Directory for Catechesis from the bishops of the United States. So this is as novus ordo a document as you can find. And what does it say? The sacrifice of the new covenant is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, which becomes present in an unbloody manner in the sacrifice of the Mass, the Eucharist. All right, there it is. Biggest life and twice as natural. The holy sacrifice of the Mass is the perpetual unbloody sacrifice of the new covenant, in which the sacrifice of the cross is made sacramentally, yet truly present. And then it goes on to explain the connection between the Last Supper, the sacrifice of the cross, and the sacrifice of the Mass. 
And naturally, in any discussion of this kind, we have to remember that we're dealing with a profound mystery. Uh, it's a mystery of faith, and, and it can never be fully explained to our intellectual satisfaction. I mean, there, there comes a point, pardon me, beyond which uh, our finite intellect cannot go, and faith has to take over. Pardon me, I got a little cough here. Frog in my throat. So, the, in the Epistle to the Hebrews, which is all about the liturgy, by the way, St. Paul tells us that Christ offered himself, <clears throat> offered his sacrifice once and for all. I apologize, I'm sorry about my voice here. My goodness. Sometimes that's what happens. It's just a drink, uh, shame when it happens on the air. All right, in the epistles to the Hebrews, St. Paul says that Christ offered himself once for all. That's Hebrews 7.27. And so, <clears throat> accordingly, there is numerically one sacrifice of the new covenant. Uh, and so the Mass is not a new sacrifice. It's not a different sacrifice. Uh, it doesn't repeat or multiply the sacrifice of the cross. The Mass is the sacrifice of the cross made liturgically, yet truly present in all its essential reality. And we're going to talk about that and more and get into the ordinary of the Mass when we come back with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic right after this. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, continuing with part one of our examination of the new order of the Mass, and we're looking at the, uh, <clears throat> at the Church's post-conciliar teaching about the nature of the Mass and the Holy Eucharist. Uh, right before the break, I said the Mass is the sacrifice of the cross made liturgically yet truly present in all its essential reality under the sacramental signs, the appearances of bread and wine, signs Christ himself instituted. In itself, and viewed from God's standpoint, the sacrifice of the Mass is timeless. So there's no, there's no question of repeating uh, the Christ's sacrifice in the Mass or adding anything to it or subtracting anything from it. Uh, at the Last Supper, the Church teaches, Christ offered liturgically the sacrifice that, he, uh, you know, on, on uh, Holy Thursday, <clears throat> he offered liturgically the sacrifice that he would offer bloodily on Good Friday. And I'm sure that uh, many of you are familiar with uh, The Fourth Cup by uh, Dr. Scott Hahn or The Lamb's Supper, these, these works that he did about the, uh, about the liturgy, that um, the Holy uh, Thursday Last Supper and the Passion and our Lord's crucifixion and death on Good Friday, his burial, his subsequent resurrection on Sunday, that all of that encompasses kind of one grand uh, liturgical celebration. Uh, and all of those things are present in the Mass. But the Mass is primarily a sacrifice. And in my um, <clears throat> post-Vatican II catechism, it says right here that the Council of Trent declared that the Mass, so using the Council of Trent as definitive, uh, 
declared the Mass is not only a meal or a remembrance of a past sacrifice, but a true sacrifice with propitiatory and supplicatory value, offered by Christ and at his command by the apostles, and offered by their successors, the bishops, who have the power to ordain priests and commission them to celebrate the Mass. So uh, the Mass isn't a self-standing reality, as though it could exist apart from the sacrifice of the cross, nor does it repeat or even renew that sacrifice. The Mass is the sacrifice of the cross made sacramentally but truly present in time. It perpetuates the reality of the sacrifice of the cross in human history, making it truly and really present throughout time whenever and wherever Mass is celebrated. All right, so I'm going to turn now to Vatican II before we get into the introductory rites of the Mass. Vatican II says um, in the document on sacred liturgy number 47, at the Last Supper on the night he was betrayed, our Savior instituted the Eucharistic sacrifice of his body and blood. He did this in order to perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross throughout the centuries until he should come again, and so to entrust to his beloved spouse the Church a memorial of his death and resurrection, a sacrament of love, a sign of unity, a bond of charity, a paschal banquet in which Christ is eaten, the mind is filled with grace, and a pledge of future glory is given to us. That last is a quote from uh, the Summa, Thomas Aquinas. And then if you look at the general instruction of the Roman Missal, it tells us the Mass is, number one, the true sacrifice of the new covenant in which a holy and living victim is offered, Jesus Christ, and we in union with him as the gift of love and obedience to the Father. So number one, it's a sacrifice. And then there's three more and that are all kind of subheads under the, the uh, meal aspect. So number two, number one, it's a sacrifice. And so number two, it's a, a spiritual banquet. Number three, it's a paschal meal, right? It represents the passage or the Passover of Christ from this world to the Father, renders him present and makes him live again in our souls and anticipates our definitive passage to the kingdom of God. And then finally, it's communitarian. It's a, a gathering together of the head and the members of Jesus Christ and uh, the head and his body, the church, right, in order to carry out a perfect divine worship. Thus, Mass is the greatest prayer that we have, through which we give thanks and praise to the Father for the wonderful future he has given us in his Son, ask forgiveness for our sins, and beg the Father's blessing upon ourselves and our fellow human beings. Okay, <clears throat> so looking at the Novus Ordo Missae, they, it begins with the introductory rites, right? And that includes uh, the, well, the divisions of the Mass are the introductory rites and then the Liturgy of the Word, the Liturgy of the Eucharist, and the concluding rite. And the introductory rites, which we're going to talk about for the next few minutes here uh, while we have our, in the time we have left, that includes the entrance antiphon, the greeting, the penitential rite, or typically at Easter time, the rite of sprinkling uh, with holy water, the Kyrie eleison, the Gloria in excelsis, and the collect or opening prayer. And the purpose of the introductory rites is to prepare us as a community to meet Christ as he comes to us in the Word and in the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, we gather as a community that's a worshiping community to celebrate our unity with God foremost and then uh, our unity with each other. 
So the greeting in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, or the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all and with your spirit, or grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, or grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that people respond, and with your spirit, or the one that you typically hear, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. And with your spirit, et cum spiritu tuo. Again, a correction of the old translation where the priest used to say, the Lord be with you, and we would say, and also with you, rather than, and with your spirit, et cum spiritu tuo, which what it really says in the Latin. And it's an important distinction, because when he says, the Lord be with you, that's plural, he's saying to us all. And then we said, we say, the Lord be with your spirit, and with your spirit, or thy spirit, because it's singular. So we're showing the, the, the difference, the 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 real, authentic difference between the priesthood of the faithful, all of us, and his spirit, which is um, ordination. And you can actually find that explanation on the U.S. Bishop's website, which I think is is awesome. And now we have the Penitential Act. Now, the Penitential Act is in one of three forms. The, the most common, <clears throat> well, I should say in every form, it begins with the priest uh, making an, an invitation, and that it ends with the absolution. So, uh, he says, brethren, or you know, you almost never hear a priest say brethren. They always say brothers and sisters, right, which is a, a, um, a legitimate option. Or sometimes they say sisters and brothers, which is not a legitimate option. That's an abuse. And, you know, it's not because, you know, oh, you know, you say sister instead of brother. Ooh, ooh. No, it's because it's not in the book. Okay? And that's the point. Um, so he says, brethren, let us acknowledge our sins and so prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries. And you take a moment to call to mind your sins. And then the confidier, I confess to almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts and in my words and what I have done and what I have failed to do through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Therefore, I ask blessed Mary, ever virgin, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray to me to the Lord our God. And then it goes on to the absolution. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. And the people say, Amen. That's option A. There are three legitimate options for the penitential rite. Option B is one that I don't think I've ever heard in person. Uh, it's, an, it's antiphonal. The priest says, Have mercy on us, O Lord. People respond, For we have sinned against you. Priest, show us, Lord, your mercy response and grant us your salvation, right? And then on to the absolution. Or option C, which you, which you uh, encounter, it's also antiphonal. The priest says, you were sent to heal the contrite of heart, Lord have mercy. The people respond, Lord have mercy. You came to call sinners, Christ have mercy. The people say, Christ have mercy. You are seated at the right hand of the Father to intercede for us, Lord have mercy. The people say, Lord have mercy. And on to the absolution. Now, in each case, or in, I should say in the first two cases, you have the invitation, the rite, the absolution, and then you go on to the Kyrie. In option C, you don't go on to the Kyrie because it's actually included in the penitential rite. The Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Now, the thing that's uh, <clears throat> the abuse that I wanted to talk about, and I can't find any information about this on, online or anyplace else, but in the last couple of years when, you know, before COVID happened and I was flying around the country and uh, in, around the Anglophone world, in many places, I encountered priests omitting the penitential act. 
So they have the greeting, the Lord be with you and also with you. They, they might re- they recite the antiphon or, you know, because chances are there's an entrance song and we'll talk about music another time. And then they go right to the Kyrie. Now, again, you can omit the Kyrie if it's part of the penitential rite, but you can't omit the penitential rite. You know, I mean, I, it, that, that is a serious abuse. And in my research, the only thing I can find that, that uh, is any, you know, gives any reason in my mind as to why someone would do this, why a priest would omit it, <clears throat> is in the, um, in the liturgical world. Back when Benedict XVI was pope, he was talking about moving the, the sign of peace because he thought it was disruptive for, you know, the, 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 the host to be broken and lying on the altar and then everybody stopped to shake hands with their neighbor. So he said, maybe we can move that to a more congenial place. And there was also some people, not Benedict, but some other people said, you know, the penitential rite is at the very beginning, but maybe we should move that to before communion. Because in the old Mass, you have the, the, the confidior at the beginning of Mass in the prayers before the altar, um, and then you also prayers at the foot of the altar, and then it's repeated after the priest's communion, and before the, the Domini non sum dignus, the Lord I am not worthy, the, the servers and the people say the confidior before they receive communion. And it seems like a good spot. And so there was some talk of that. Maybe they should move it. And the best that I can figure is that some liturgist, uh, some influential liturgist or some liturgist uh, liturgy conference or something, they got it in their heads that the beginning of the Mass wasn't a good place for it. But they never, you know, got the official okay to move it. And so as a result, they're just not doing it at all. So you can see where, as John Paul II says, that this, you know, this spirit of creativity and adaptation can lead to real problems. Okay, we're going to talk more about this next week. Thank you so much for being with us. I don't know where the time goes, even when I'm uh, choking to death and can't hardly uh, get my breath. But uh, it, was, it was great to have you with us, as always. We've got our women's conference coming up uh, this month. And if you're interested in that, you can go to vmpr.org and find out all about it. Also, I'm going to be doing a conference on Our Lady and uh, Prophecies for Our Times in October. And I believe we're going to have a Will the Real Vatican II conference. Please uh, stand up in November of this year. So lots of great stuff coming up. And that'll all be on the website in due course. In the meantime... You can visit there to find out about all our other programs and what we're doing right now, what we're up to. And, of course, there's the big blue Donate Now button. So if you can help us out not only with your prayers but with a, uh, a financial contribution, if God has blessed you so much that you are able to do that, I encourage you to do so. We can't do it without you. In the meantime, thanks for listening. And until next time, may God richly bless you and your family.